Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world. Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at AsianHustleNetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Darice Chang. Darice is a Taiwanese American writer, artist, model, and activist from Minnesota. They believe in a compassionate and equitable society for all, regardless of gender expression, race, ethnicity, ability, or socioeconomic status. They hosted the first English-language LGBTQA plus radio show in Taiwan, Aquarius, hosted on ICRT FM 100 from 2020 to 2021. They performed drag under the moniker Dan Dan Demolition and was featured in the Netflix docuseries Midnight Asia. They are passionate about authentic Asian and Asian-American representation in media and entertainment. They also volunteer as social media director, international events ambassador, and English-language liaison for Women's March Taiwan. They have previously aided in coordination and promotion for various causes, including animal rights, women's rights, human rights, and Taiwan's representation in the international space. Therese, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. (laughs) We're really excited to have you as well. So let's get right into it. I'd love to learn about your upbringing. Where'd you grow up and what was it like growing up for you? Okay, so I was actually born and raised in Minnesota. I was born in St. Paul, and then we moved out to Rochester, which is where the Mayo Clinic is. They do really good, like, cancer research. And so we were in Rochester till I was eight, and then we moved back up to the Twin Cities, and I grew up in a suburb called Savage, Minnesota, and ended up going to the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Wow. Um, And what was it like growing up in Minnesota and all of those different areas? I'm sure, I mean... I, we've had a lot of people in AHN who are from the Minnesota area and, you know, it's, it must have been an experience for them just like learning about their Asian identity and, you know, getting to know more about their roots and their cultural heritage. So I'd love to learn like what, what was your personal experience like growing up there? So I was super lucky. I have a very traditional mother. So my first language is actually Chinese because they asked around and everyone's like, it's okay. Your kids are going to pick up English. You don't have to teach them. So my mom was like, okay, so we're going to teach them Chinese first. And so I only spoke Chinese until I went to preschool. And I remember going to preschool and being like, why does no one understand me? But by the time I was in kindergarten, like I had learned English, so it was fine. But I could speak and read and write Chinese before I could do English. And that was just something that really stuck with me. 
and then growing up bilingual, like you would go to Chinese school and stuff, but obviously you use English all the time. So that became my better language. And we also did a lot of just like traditional, like Chinese, Taiwanese stuff growing up. Like both my sisters were in traditional dance. I was not gifted as a dancer um, growing up. So I did instruments, uh, obviously piano, everyone does piano or violin. And I also did guzhen, which is the long stringed instrument. I was in a traditional music uh, Chinese uh, traditional music, Chinese ensemble, yeah, in Minnesota. And I also played chang, uh, changdi and zudi. So that's the bamboo flute, yeah. I was actually mostly on flute and not as much on gluten. And I also did drums and eventually learned taiko drums and did traditional Chinese painting also. That was another thing that I did, yeah. And we had a really strong connection with like the Chinese Taiwanese community where we were growing up. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That is so amazing. I mean, I'm so glad to hear that you were so in touch with, you know, your your heritage. And I think I grew up a very similar way where my parents were just like, they never spoke English to me because they knew that, you know, me and my siblings were going to learn English in school anyway. So they only spoke Chinese and we were pretty much only allowed to speak Chinese because they wouldn't be able to understand us if we spoke English. So I'm the exact same way. And they put us through Chinese school. They had us, you know, write in like little booklets that they would buy from Chinatown and like just write in Chinese all day, every single day. So I yeah. grew up a very, very similar way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it's like, it's interesting because you grow up in a very, like the Midwest is very, very white. Right. And so like you just... Every time you go to school, you know you're different, but then you come back home and you're still like immersed in the culture. And I feel like that was something really special about just like the way that I grew up. Yeah. 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 And I think that's very much needed. You know, I think, you know, going to school and like seeing that there is probably really little Asian people, it's, it's refreshing to go back home and know that you're still in touch with your Asian roots and learn more about your Asian identity. So I love that you had that experience. I I know you have just like a wealth of experience and knowledge and you've been in many, many different industries. I, I know that you were, you know, dabbling in like real estate back then as a realtor assistant. You were Oh you looked at my LinkedIn. Yeah, I did. I did like Brian and I we were doing research on you and like I remember when Brian had saw your post in Asian Council Network and at that time we were, you know, watching Midnight Asia. We can talk about that later on too. But okay, we were like cool. looking at your LinkedIn and you were, you know, doing event coordination and a correspondent. And, you know, to us, like, we're just, you know, so amazed and just so in awe that you were dabbling in so many different things. But I know that, you know, being a correspondent was like probably one of the bigger roles that you had that led you into, you know, the industry of you know producing and all of that. So how was that transition like just like, you know, dabbling in so many different things and then realizing that you wanted to dive more into, you know, being a producer and a writer and a a publisher journalist. So I want to learn about that as well. Okay, cool. So basically, I've always been an avid and very interdisciplinary reader. So I read so much growing up, like my mom really instilled in us the importance of education. And like during summer breaks, instead of taking us like Disney World or whatever, she would take us to the library. So I've always been a huge just like consumer of information. And I think that's really what led into the journalism. Also being in Taiwan and being multilingual. So I actually got my start as an interpreter for like international press conferences um, when I first came back this time. And so that's 
I like met different journalists and like I was interpreting for a political candidate at the time. And then I would see what they wrote and I would be like, Mm, I feel like I could probably do this too. And so then I started pitching and then I started writing and that's how I got into journalism. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to bring up is that I read this article called Why You Should Have At Least Two Careers by Kabir Segal, published in the Harvard Business Review very early on, like when I was in college, I think. And that had an enormous impact on me and my professional life. Because I feel like a lot of times we feel like we have to be siloed into like one career track. But reading that article... I was like, wait, you can also, you can be creative, you can have your, you know, professional life, and you can also do many things at the same time, which I was always into because like, I don't know, I guess in school, like, you know, you learn like eight different subjects at the same time. And usually people are just like good at a couple of them. But I was one of those kids that was like good at like all of them. And I loved all of them. So I was like, I'm never going to be able to choose. Like, I never want to like give up one just so I can have the other. And I think that sort of carries over into my professional life yeah <laughs> that's so amazing yeah that's very rare to have someone like like all of the subjects because you normally just like a few but that is really amazing and i absolutely agree i think especially in the asian culture our families they always tell us you know just try to do this one profession you know don't really dabble into different things and that's normally just a few professions that we're pigeonholed into our parents normally tell us to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or a pharmacist, right? But I don't think they realize, a lot of our parents don't realize. And I think it's just like immigrant mentality too, that we are starting to realize that maybe these subjects and these industries don't really give us a lot of passion, right? Or fulfillment. And we're trying to, you know, kind of branch out and look into other things that really give us that sense of enjoyment, right? That sense of fulfillment. So I love that you, you know, really honed into your perspective and like looked to see if there were any other things that you wanted to do, which is like so obvious because you're just like, you're so experienced and so skilled in so many different areas. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So what brought you back to Taiwan? Because you're located in Taiwan right now, right? Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah, you were initially in Minnesota and I think you were in LA for a little bit. But what brought you back to Taiwan and what was like that turning point? Like what made you really make that big decision to go back? I think for me, it was I had done a gap year here after college. So and obviously, we would come back like for the holidays and stuff as a child. So like I was familiar with the environment, like I kind of knew how things were. And then when I graduated, I was like, I don't know, like, if I want to do a master's, that was also during the economic downturn in the US. So the job market was not great. And I initially actually wanted to go to Japan because I majored in Japanese. That was one of my majors. And but that was the same year as the Tohoku earthquake. So we decided it was not a good idea to do that. And since I had family here, I was like, okay, we'll just go to Taiwan for a year, you know, experience for a while and then come back to the US and like find a real job and whatever. So that's what I did. And I came out here and I started I tried teaching English because that's what everyone does. I was not great at it. And but it turns out I had the language skills to do translation, which I had much more enthusiasm for. So I ended up doing translation and eventually got into interpretation, which is when you're speaking and interpreting. Yeah. And then it turns out I can also do simultaneous interpretation. So that's like conference interpretation where you talk at the same time as somebody else, except for in a different language. So yeah, that's what I was doing while I was here and I loved it and it was super fun. And I just love Taipei. And then after a year, I was like, okay, time to go back to the US. So we went back and then 
had an opportunity in Los Angeles that was the real estate job. So I moved out there and was working for a family friend for a while as a real estate assistant. And it wasn't really for me. So I ended up looking for other jobs. I got hired as a assistant into a logistics company also it was not for me. And then I got headhunted actually into a Japanese company. And it's really interesting because actually Japanese companies always use an agency whenever they hire. So, and they'll scrub like, cause I put, I knew Japanese on indeed. Like I was just looking for jobs. And so they'll scrub the resumes on there and look for people who speak Japanese to work at Japanese companies. So this headhunter found me and then they do the pre-interviews and are like, what are you looking for? What do you want? Blah, blah, blah. And so she got me like three different interviews and then two of them liked me and I just chose one of them. Yeah. And that's how I ended up working in food and beverage distribution. I guess we're technically an import export company and my, my division focused on non-food. So my specialty was actually in like handmade Japanese knives and like all of the accoutrements that you need that are not food that you would use in like a restaurant. So that was super cool. Well, I was out in LA. Yeah. So you get to meet like all these different chefs and like all the top restaurants basically came to our company. So wow, that's so amazing. I mean, going back and forth from, you know, the States to Taiwan, how was that like for you? Because for me personally, my parents are from Hong Kong. And so sometimes I would go back to Hong Kong. But for a lot of, let's say, American-born Asians, right, we tend to have this feeling where, like, we don't feel American enough when we're in America, right? Because we're always going to be seen seen as, like, an outsider. We're always going to, you know, look the way that we do. And a lot of the times, you know, we've seen a lot of that happen in the last couple of years in the U.S. where a lot of Asians are going through racist attacks, you know. But then... When I go back to Hong Kong or Asia, I also feel a little bit out of place because they can tell that I'm not actually from there. And they can just automatically see that, like just by the way I, I dress or the mm-hmm. way I, I speak, they can automatically tell. So what was that experience for you? Like just going back and forth and did that have any effect on you know just finding your Asian identity when we were going back and forth from the States to Taiwan? I feel like... Because I've always had a very solid Asian identity. Like I know like in the States, like you don't see Asian representation in mainstream media as much when we were growing up. But like we have Hong Kong film and like we have like Taiwan used to be huge and like dramas and stuff. And so I always looked at that for my Asian identity. And then I think growing up in the Midwest, you do have a very strong sense of being American just because it's like the heartland. So that's something that you can never take away from me. Like, that's just where I grew up and that's how I grew up. So I guess I never really had any sort of like identity crisis that way, but you do get looked at differently. Like I remember my first boyfriend, this is so funny. So my, my family on my grandfather's side is actually from Sichuan. And the first time that we went out on a date with his mom, because I was meeting his parents, he's like, do you want to go to a Sichuan restaurant? And I was like, what's a Sichuan? And then it turns out it's like, that's how they pronounce Sichuan in American. That was like, oh my gosh, like I never realized that like, this is the lens that you view my culture through um, just because I was so in it all the time. And I think moving out to Los Angeles, which has a much larger Asian population, 
was also really interesting because that brought me actually closer to my Asian American identity. Whereas before it was sort of like Asian and American and then LA is sort of where it came together because there's so much of that going on. And I was very lucky to be actually at a Japanese company because a lot of them are like Nisei or like however many generations removed. And you get to see how like the Asian American identity has progressed and LA being such a locus of culture for that was really interesting. So I really appreciated that time there and connecting with the people there. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think LA and SF are very, very diverse, San Francisco. And so Brian is from Los Angeles and I'm from San Francisco. And so the area that I grew up in in San Francisco is, I would say, it's like 90% Asian. And then mm-hmm. Brian is the same way. Where he grew up, it's called 626. It's like... Yeah, that's where I moved to when I went to LA. I was in Monterey Park. And it's oh, yeah. Like, you don't Monterey even need Park. English. Yeah, exactly. You don't even need English. Like, you can definitely survive if you don't even know English. And we always talk about how... The areas that we grew up in, in San Francisco and LA, like we didn't, it was hard for us to picture us as a minority unless we went out of California because we were just stuck in our bubble all the time. You know, like Brian just was like in 66 and everything was just available to you if you were an immigrant. And there's just so many Asian restaurants, so many, you know, resources for Asian immigrants. You really didn't know that you were a minority in the same way as I was in, in San Francisco, like when I traveled outside of California, that's when I really found out like, oh, I am a minority. Like there's not a lot of Asians out here. So it's just interesting perspective on like different locations and everything like that. Yeah, definitely. Like when I was in LA, I never really felt like a minority because like I was in the 626 and then I worked at a Japanese company, which was like 90% Japanese. So it's just like, it was sort of like living in, basically in just like Asian America. So, yeah, like, absolutely. It was great. Yeah. yeah. So, tell me about the radio show Querious. How long have you been doing Querious, and what are the specific topics that you talk about on the show? And what is the message that you are, you know, looking to portray to your audience on that show? I think for me, well, the show was, it was actually a music show. So most of the time we're playing music. And so my focus was obviously on LGBTQ plus and ally musicians. So most of the songs we were playing were like, like we played Little Nas X and a lot of just like classic gay artists, I guess, like Britney Spears. I mean, she's not gay, but she's an icon and like Madonna and stuff like that. And it was mostly about just like representing. So because I identify as non-binary and I'm queer and there just had never been a radio show in Taiwan that centered on that. And I was really lucky that our radio manager helped to push that through. And I was able to do the show and have that representation for a little bit. And so every week we would just talk about like, hey, what's going on on the scene? Um, What new music is there? Because it is like a music centered show and mostly just like top hits. So yeah, it was basically just like having that space for people to see themselves being represented in on like the airwaves and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's so important, you know, to have that platform and create that safe space to build representation. And that's, you know, very similar and exactly the same thing that we're trying to do with Asian Hustle Network as well. And it doesn't have to be Asians, but it could be, you know, other groups, other minorities, other, you know, communities that you're trying to uplift and really amplify. And you're really providing that platform 
for the LGBTQA plus community to, you know, hear and see people who look like them and sound like them. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with Asian Hustle Network as well. So I, I commend you for you know, creating that platform. And it makes you think, like, why hasn't anyone else done this before, too? Right. And you mentioned that Aquarius was the first radio show catered towards the LGBTQA plus community in Taiwan. And Asian Hustle Network was going through a very similar route as well, where there were a lot of Asian communities, but not a lot of Asian communities that were catered towards entrepreneurs and small business owners. And that's so important for us because we have to support each other and support our businesses. And we've seen such a decline with, you know, Asian businesses during the pandemic. And it just like made us really think like, why isn't there anything like this out there? But I love that you were just like pioneering that space for the LGBTQ plus QA plus community. So really commend you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And I really love the AHN community as well. I think I got into it right at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it was just really uplifting to see so many people coming together to help each other out. Like when, you know, people were like fundraising for PPE and things like that. And it was just really it's like a really, really good positive community. And I'm so glad that you guys created this for that's so sweet of you to know like i was going back to the old posts in asian Hustle network and like for listeners there used to like join a long time ago and i could see like very old posts from back then before the pandemic that she was posting and a lot of people were actually you know giving shout outs to Doris and saying like hey i saw you on midnight asia and it's just so incredible to have connected with Doris through this platform so tell us, Doris, tell us about Midnight Asia. Brian and I, we watched it on Netflix and I was so in love with it because I just love going back to Asia and learning not only about my ethnicity, but other Asian ethnicities as well, just like the food, the culture, the nightlife. And I was just so in love with the series. So tell us how this opportunity of Midnight Asia came upon you and what the whole process looked like. Okay, so basically, like the the production network in Taiwan is really small for international media. So we basically all know each other. And so I knew the producer that was helping with the show, Betty. And she came to me when initially when they were just like doing research for the show. She was like, hey, do you know anything about like late night in Taipei? And I was like, okay, like these are the clubs, there's drag shows, there's this, there's that. And so I sent her a bunch of contacts and information and then she went out and did her research. And then she came back to me later and she's like, so I heard you're a drag king. (laughs) And I hadn't told her this at all. So she found this out on her own. And at the time I was still like, I would consider myself like a baby king. So I was only performing for like a year and a half. I definitely wasn't at the level that I wanted to be at yet. But I was like, yeah. And I know how you also got into drag too like how it all started it started with just like drag salons so they're like private intimate gatherings of people who are interested in performing drag so our drag granddaddy as we call them is sky grim and they had been a drag king i guess on the scene for a while they weren't really performing but they would show up at queer parties like dressed up with like glitter and sparkles and makeup and everything and just like drag chinging and so they wanted to foster a community of other people who were willing to perform and stuff because the drag queen community in taiwan has been around for a while maybe 20 years at this point but there wasn't really a drag king community for the afab or assigned female at birth 
community. So they held a drag salon at their house and people came over. I went over. We all did makeup together. We took pictures. We like were talking about what we want to do, our drag personas. Because you can, you can sort of think of like the... Like when you have a drag queen, right? Like you ha- they have like a persona. It's like, you know, like Alaska. This is what she does. Or like Trixie Mattel. Like they have their like thing. So everyone was coming up with like, okay, like who do I want my drag persona to be? Mm-hmm. And that's when I came up with Dun Dun Demolition. Because I was like, I really want to, you know, just sort of like smash through what everyone thinks of when they think of, for example, a non-binary person or or different gender norms and things like that. So that's where the demolition part of it came from. Oh, and then Dandan Dan is actually my Chinese name. It's my nickname in Chinese, actually. Yeah. And in Japanese, it's also like a very dramatic sound effect. So if you read manga and you see like Dan, it means like a big, like a big presence. And that's what I wanted to create for my drag persona. So that's how that came about. And then through that, we got invited to different performances and we also hold our own performances. So like one of them had like a boat party and I performed at a fundraiser for like animal charity. And yeah, that's sort of how I got my start. Wow, that is so amazing. It's really intriguing and just like enlightening just hearing about how you got started because you definitely... You know, talked about that during Midnight Asia and just like learning about your experiences is so, so refreshing. So how did the Midnight Asia production team kind of fall on your lap and how did you get you know, casted onto the show? I think they were just looking for interesting stories. And so drag mm-hmm. kings are sort of, they're not necessarily newer, but they're getting more popular. So Betty asked me if I wanted to be on the show and I was like, yes, definitely. Like representation matters. So then we met with the producer and we had pre-interviews. There was me and also Yolanda, who is my drag guardian on the show. And so they interviewed us about like our experiences, my life in Asia, et cetera, et cetera. And then after that, they were like, okay, like we want you, we want you on the show. And I was like, okay, cool. And then COVID hit and everything got delayed. And after, luckily, Taiwan did a super good job. Like, we never had a huge outbreak or anything. So we were actually able to film after maybe like a half year delay. And they ended up working with a local producer because at the time, our borders are actually still closed, mostly closed. And so they couldn't fly in the original director and they worked with a local director to film the show. Yeah. Wow, that is so amazing. I mean, that whole experience must have been so, you know, life changing for you and you know it's it's amazing when brian and i we were watching it we were just so inspired how has your life kind of changed has your life changed at all ever since midnight asia and have you been have you just experienced any changes or learned something about yourself after the production of midnight asia or just like went through any very enlightening experiences for yourself i think i really like really appreciated the fact that i've had this opportunity and the representation part of it actually has been a huge part because I've had messages from like people all over the world will message me on my Instagram and be like, Oh my gosh, I saw you on Minute Asia. And like, thank you so much for representing our community. And it'll be people from like Brazil or like Ireland or something like I've never been to before. And they're just super happy to see someone who's AFAB and non-binary being represented on such a major streaming platform. Yeah. And also I think Asians in the queer space as well, like I've been added 
to a bunch of like drag kinging groups specifically for Asians and then just networking with different people who are in the space and interested in the same things and trying to push that representation forward. Yeah. 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 I absolutely agree. Representation matters so much, you know, and I think that for us to have more of us being represented on screen, that will, you know, create a domino effect for our future generations, right? And if we, you know, if we can't put ourselves on screen, our younger generations won't be able to, they won't look to that and say like, you know, that that is possible. I can, I can be on TV too if I am XYZ, right? And especially in the queer space for Asians, we don't, we still don't see a lot of that, right? And mm-hmm. we're still kind of building up that representation because, you know, we're still seeing a lot of inequity um, within that space, like let alone Asians, but also in the queer space, like we're still trying to build up that representation. So just wanted to thank you for, you know, doing what you're doing and creating that space for, for, for all of us and for people in, the, in who are queer as well. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So after, you know, all of these experiences and after, you know, you know, just going through trying to figure out like who you want to become and, you know, uh, what you were trying to do after all of these experiences. I know you have dabbled in so many things. What do you think has been like the hardest thing for you? I'm sure you go through a lot of peaks and valleys, right? We all have our, our highs, our lows, but was there a time where you really like felt really down for a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners and uh, producers and writers, people who are just you know, hustling in their own rights, we oftentimes have very, very, you know, sad times where, you know, we look back and we think to ourselves, like, can we really do this? Am I really equipped to become an entrepreneur? Have you ever went through those times? And if so, how did you overcome them? I think definitely. Yeah. I'm trying to think about how to phrase it. It's like, sometimes you just feel like there's no, sometimes you feel like, like I've tried so hard and I've given everything and like things still are not the way that I want them to be. Or like, I still haven't gotten to where I want to be yet. And you really, really, really want to just like give up and just be like, okay, maybe I'll just like get a day job or whatever. But I think the thing that's pushed me through is actually this research paper that shows that people who succeed, the only thing they have in common is perseverance. Like it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much money you start out with. It doesn't matter anything. The only thing that matters is that you don't give up. And that's been the thing that's kept pushing me forward because it's like, as long as I don't give up, like you will succeed. Like according to science, that is the thing. And so, yeah, that's what's kept me going. And I think also like having a purpose too, right? Like with Netflix and performance and representation, I'm just like, I never really realized how much bravery it took to be able to just put yourself out there until you start doing it. And I feel like I, if I have that characteristic, I should be exhibiting it and like doing my best to help the community or to like represent and just be myself as much as possible. So every time I like get scared or whatever, I start to doubt myself. Like that's what I go back to. And the same thing, I guess, in like my regular freelancing life, freelancing is very difficult. (laughs) And yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, hey, like I know other freelancers and they also have hard times. And so like you have a community and you just like, sometimes you're like, oh man, this client, they haven't paid me in like two months and they keep dragging or like, you know, this case is really difficult and whatever. Like you have a community that you go back to and that you can help support each other. And I think that's really important. 
Yeah. So yeah. those are like the, the things that really get me through the super difficult times. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Community is so important. And I think oftentimes we forget about what has really helped us get to the finish line, right? And oftentimes that is community. Because I do see sometimes, you know, people would say, I, I made it on my own or, you know, I'm self-made. But that's not realistic at all, you know, because if you really did make it, there were people, a community, your family, your friends, whoever, they were there to support you, you know. And I think we have this, um, you know, this pride where a lot of us, you know, we want to, you know, boast about, oh, I'm self-made or I, I did everything on my own. But the reality is that you, you most likely had someone there to help you get to that level, right? And to, you know, t- today, like, it usually is community. And community is the one that really pushes us forward. And I love that you are so well immersed in community and the fact that you're, you know, talking a lot about community is, is so important because for Asian Council Network, that's what, that's what we're all about, community. And to see everyone just like support each other and amplify each other and uplift each other, that, that goes such a long way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Like with the drag community, with AHN, like mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the times we strive for perfection and so it can be difficult to like reach out to others for help but like all of us have our own struggles and there's going to be someone out there who has been through what you've been through or has a resource that you could use right now so really just like lean into that because you have that resource right yeah absolutely so I have a fun question for you I don't know if you would have an answer but were there any like fun stories from um, recording on Midnight Asia that you can share with the audience I think the most fun one. Okay. So they told me super last minute. They were like, okay, so like we want to do a scene with you and your friends, just like drinking at a bar. Like, do you have any friends um, that you can call over? And I was like, oh my God, crap. Because like all my friends are hustlers and like all of them are super busy. (laughs) So I start texting like every single person I know. I'm like, hey, are you doing anything right now? Like we are filming for Netflix. Like I need you to come through. And um, my friend Ivan actually like came through. He was like, yes, I have time right now. Like I will show up. And he showed up in like the best way. Cause like, I'm super big on sustainability and like ethical fashion and everything. And he shows up in this jacket by Storywear, which is this like social entrepreneur program in Taiwan that empowers women who are homebound due to children with like developmental disabilities. And it's like a zero waste fashion brand. And I'm just like, Evan, you are so on point right now. Like, I love this. I love you so much. And he's just like the best guy too. He's super humble, but he like, he used to be at the Max Planck Institute. Like he has a PhD in physics and is like an artist and teaches at like one of the top universities in the country. And he's just like, yeah, I'll come through. <laughs> oh my gosh. So that was the best. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing only- Evan like showing up in the most like extravagant way as possible (laughs) yeah he came through i'm just like oh my gosh like thank you i have one friend and then like we went to the bar and there were other people there i knew too so i was like okay good like this worked out otherwise i'm just like ah like you guys gotta give me like a month advance like two months advance if you want people to like do the thing so (laughs) that's yeah i'm glad you found someone (laughs) i would be freaking out too if they like only gave me a set amount of time to find someone (laughs) yeah literally like the day of we were like halfway through filming they're like hey let's do this scene and i'm like huh okay (laughs) (laughs) thanks oh 
Like, who is oh. free right this second? You pull through, you pull through, Therese. <laughs> so, Therese, how do you normally manage your mental health? And just like, what is your day to day routine like? Because, you know, for a lot of us as entrepreneurs and hustlers, we, a lot of the times we tend to forget to take care of ourselves too. And I'm just curious about, you know, how you normally, you know, find solitude within yourself and just like manage your mental health on a day to day basis. I meditate a lot. I have a daily meditation that I do at six in the morning every day. And it's just like a half hour of like blessings and like positivity, which is really helpful. And then I'll do the same thing at 1pm. If I have time, if I don't have meetings and stuff, I'll do another round. And then I have one before bed, also for a half hour. So it's just like a wind down before going to bed. And that's what I do for meditation. I also maintain like a healthy diet. I'm vegan. So that helps a lot. And just trying to stay with the whole food diet when I can. I actually cook like 50% of my own food or more sometimes just because it's healthier than eating out in Taiwan, especially like we do have healthy options, but they do tend to be a little pricier and I like making my own food. So because I know exactly what goes in it. So I do that and I exercise when I can. My exercise regime is not great right now, but I do what I can. Yeah. And I do also see like a, what's it called? Like a psychiatrist for mental health. Cause I actually have, I was diagnosed with bipolar a while ago and like, I think depression and anxiety. So I do see a doctor for that. And I have some medications that I take to help manage that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you were you know, able to you know, seek help because especially in the Asian community where it's like there's such a big stigma with seeking mental health services, but it's such a normal thing. You know, even if you don't feel like you need help, I think it's really important for us to seek help, um, mm-hmm. either with a therapist or a psychiatrist, because they can help you just organize your day-to-day thoughts and just like kind of peel off the layers. And I personally feel like it's so healthy for us to just learn more and understand ourselves a lot better in ways that we wouldn't be able to normally understand ourselves if it wasn't for, you know, help from a psychiatrist or a therapist. So I'm so glad that you kind of like got the the routine down and, you know, meditating for three times a day. That is super impressive. Like I feel like for a lot of people who hustle on a daily basis, like we never find the time to do that, but to actually just like find the time and make time to meditate for three times a day. That is extremely impressive. I mean, I don't always make all three. Like sometimes I only do one, but it's like I have it in my calendar for all three. So that like if I have the time, I'll be like, okay, we're going to do it. And then, but then obviously sometimes you have meetings or it's busy or something. Yeah. But I think just like trying our best. And also I did want to say I was, I'm really grateful to my dad because I did have some mental health issues in high school and he encouraged me actually to go to therapy, which was really helpful. And then that's how I knew like later in life when I was having other issues that I was like, Hey, this isn't normal and I need to seek help. So yeah, I think um, I'm really, really blessed in that way. Yeah, I love that so much because a lot of Asian parents, they don't even, you know, know a lot about mental health. And um, I don't blame them either because back then there was not a lot of research or, you know, analysis on mental health. So it's hard for them to understand what it even is to begin with. But I'm glad your your dad kind of like opened the, that conversation for you. So it's easier for you to really understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think now there there's a lot more resources in right. like the 
like for example Chinese language right. like I found some resources for like explaining bipolar or like manic depression and things like that yeah. in like Chinese and they have like comics and things that like people are working on it and I find that it's helpful to have like if you have Asian parents who you know they can't read the English right then you can give it to them in the original language and that helps to bridge that gap yeah yeah I love that so much it's, so, it's like hard to like I don't even know how to translate that to my parents you know yeah <laughs> so Therese what is next for you like what is your what are your goals going to be for let's say the next five years and what's really next on the horizon for you Ooh. I'm not one of those five-year people. I used to be. <laughs> it could be, um, be 10. <laughs> yeah, and it, like, doesn't really... Like, in Chinese, they say, like, or whatever. Yeah, so, like, your plan can never keep up with the changes that happen. And I have yeah. definitely found that to be true. So, like, I guess my five-year plan would be to star in more things there's like a sustainable travel show i wanted to someone asked me for a vegan cooking show a while back so i did put together a proposal and i have to shop it around more and see who wants to fund it i want to maybe try acting because when we were doing the netflix filming actually the director was looking at the footage she's like you should try acting you'd be a really good actor and i'm like okay like i I've, I've thought about it tertiarily because like I've always been creative and I enjoy expressing like myself through body and storytelling and everything. And so that's maybe something that I want to try out. Yeah. And then getting back into music, actually, the reason I started doing drag was actually to learn more performative art before I wanted to create music. Cause I guess I've always been just like an artist at heart and that's just something that I've always wanted to do is to create like music performance. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see more films with you in it, with you being, you know, with you acting in it. And so I can't wait to see all of those videos come to fruition. So Therese, where can our listeners find out more about you online? So I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I also have a small website and I'll drop you all the links so you can follow me. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I will be sure to add all that in the show notes. But that was amazing episode, Doris. It was awesome hearing about your story. I just want to thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to be sharing this with the world. <laughs> Thank you, Teresa. Bye. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.